There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're here to study the book of 1 Corinthians, the very end of chapter 15, and then getting into chapter 16. So grab your Bibles, if you will. Um, at the end of the Bible study, I'll explain what we're going to do next. It's basically going to be a question and answer thing next Tuesday. Email a question, um, bring one if you're here in person, or write it down and hand it in. Um, but I'll email more about that later. In any case, let's get into the Word. Um, so I know that you're awake. Those of you that are here, say amen. Amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, so I know you're awake, wave or say amen. I see somebody yelling. That's very good. I almost heard it. Um, by the way, we tried this Bible study with Zoom having everybody's mics on so that you could interact, those of you on Zoom. What ended up happening was 60 or 70 or 50 screens all at once. We heard dogs barking, dishes being cleaned and dropped, and doors slamming, and people arguing. We heard Fox News on TV. We, you name it, we heard it, and we decided mute all. And so I do that every time. Sorry about that, but it just works better. In any case, chapter 15, um, we're, we're at the very last verse, verse 58. 15 to review is the resurrection chapter of the whole Bible speaks of Christ's resurrection, our resurrection, the resurrection of all who have died, who have believed in the past, all at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, what that all means is really spelled out in uh, right around verse 53. Pick it up there and we'll just read from there. For the imperishable, that's the new resurrected body you're going to get, uh, I'm sorry, for the perishable, that's the old body, must clothe itself with the imperishable, that's the new body you're going to get, and the mortal, the body you have now, body that can get sick and die, with immortality, you will have immortality. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks of it in the present tense and says, you that believe, Gospel of John says, have, present tense, eternal life. Pretty amazing thing. When, verse 54, the when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The thing people fear that hangs over all of our heads, death will be swallowed up in victory. One of the things Jesus did on the cross. Where, O oh death, verse 55, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law. He died in our place and rose from the dead, proving that he had conquered death. There is no sin guilt for us. Our sin nature will be a thing of the past one day. All of those things in verse 56 are gone. So no wonder verse 58 says... A therefore, and in this Bible study, whenever we see the word therefore, we always ask, we have to ask yourself, what's the therefore there for? In light of all of that good news and your glorious future, therefore, verse 58, my dear brothers and sisters, talking to believers, stand firm. In other words, don't wimp out. Hold on to what you know and believe and stand firm in it 
never wavering because the world offers so many distractions and little temptations that a little at a time will eat away at your faith if you don't stay focused in the word, in prayer, and in fellowship with other believers. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. I love that verse. So number one, stand firm. We won't go there now, but in our church, we've been studying Ephesians and in chapter six, we went through the full armor of God that we are supposed to be wearing to protect ourselves from the influence of the world and the devil and demons and evil. In that verse, in that chapter, I should say, the word stand appears again and again and again. We stand, but we don't stand in our own strength. We stand in the strength of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. We stand on the word of God, the promises that we know are true. Back to verse 58, stand firm, let nothing move you. Now that can be influences, false teachers, all kinds of other things. What moves people away from Christianity the most? Well, there's several things. Some of it is, have you seen this phenomenon? Kids are believers. They go to high school, they're believers. They go away to college, they become unbelievers. That's the influence of the world. Most colleges, even the ones that started out as Christian um, places of learning, are now teaching such liberal, crazy, godless stuff that the kids, unless they're grounded, some of them lose their faith. It's very important. There's a guy, uh, he died very young. His name is Paul Little. If you're a new Christian, I can't recommend his books strongly enough to you. Paul Little wrote two books, Know What You Believe, and the second one is Know Why You Believe. In other words, know the basic doctrines of Christianity and why you believe them, meaning where it says that in the Bible, so you know why you believe it. It's not just some myth somebody told you. Very important. That's part of standing firm uh, as well and letting nothing move you. Always give yourselves, I'm still in 58, fully to the work of the Lord. That means don't just sort of do the minimum daily requirement. Do the maximum. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And here's why. You know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Translation, it's all worth it in the end. Even if you don't get the credit the side of heaven, even if nobody notices, even if it looks like nothing's really happening, if you're obeying God, you're planting seeds, well, nobody's getting saved. You never know. A person may move away and get saved and you never hear from them, but in heaven, you'll have them come up to you and say, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. It made a difference. And I grew and I believed and what have you. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Doesn't matter if we get the praise from people. You know who sees? God and Christ. And they, God and Christ will reward faithful believers. So what we live for is, remember those verses? Well done, good and faithful servant. Can't get any better than that. Okay, chapter 16. We're going to uh, cover a couple things in chapter 16. These are, it's going to end up being his closing remarks, but before that, we're going to talk about three resources and using them wisely. And the first one is money, and the second one is your time, the amount of time that God has given 
you. And the third one is people. The three important things. That's what he's going to cover here. Um, let's see. He's also going to tell us about his plans, Paul's plans for the future. But I want you to notice certain words in those plans that show that he's not saying, this is what I'm doing, follow me, God. He's saying, show me, God. If you have other plans, overrule me. Let's dive in. Chapter 16, 1 Corinthians, um, verses 1 to 4, we're going to talk about money. Don't worry, we're not going to take a collection or anything. Verse 1, chapter 16. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of instruction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. That's verses 1 to 4. That's the money portion. There's much more here than meets the eye, I just want to tell you, about um, giving of your finances, your money, to the Lord's work. First of all, whenever he says in this book, now about this, now about the speaking in tongues, now about the collection, it's a way of Paul answering a letter the Corinthians had written to him, they asked about giving, how much should we give, how should we give, who should give, where do you give? So that's what he's doing, he's answering it. The collection for the Lord's people, do you see that? What this is not, surprisingly, is not, this is our little congregation in, first, in Corinth, he's not talking about the collection for the church itself, which every church does. Even home churches did it because there's certain expenses associated with ministry and what have you. Keep the lights on and the air conditioning on and what have you and the heat. This word for collection is a special offering. He had told them about it before, we know from this and the book of Galatians and elsewhere. Here's what's going on. This is a collection for, he calls them the Lord's people. But you'll see later on in verse 3, taking the gift where? To Jerusalem. This is a special offering in addition to whatever they're giving to their own little home church, house church. By the way, all churches were house churches. Somebody with a big, Jeff and Doreen have a big house, we'll meet in their family room, all of us. There were no real church buildings till the third century when that sort of thing started. Okay, about the collection for the Lord's people. Who are the Lord's people? The believers who are mostly Jewish in Jerusalem. Christianity springs, grows out of, listen, Judaism, right? Jesus, it's not a separate religion. Christianity is completed Judaism, in which a predicted Messiah finally comes, fulfills the law, dies as the Lamb of God for the sins of the world, rises from the dead. It's completed Judaism. The Jews, many of them in Jerusalem, became Christians. Immediately what happened was they were shut out from the Jewish people. If 
I was a, a maker of shoes and I was Jewish in Jerusalem and I became a Christian. All my Jewish buddies stopped being my friends and wouldn't buy my shoes anymore. So there's financial hardship. Not only that, the Jews were persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem. Add to that a famine that was going on in the land at that time and food was scarce. And when food, if food is scarce, prices go through the roof. So the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering. Okay. But there's something else going on here. I'll get to it in a second. So about the collection for the Lord's people, that's who he means. The Christians who are Jews mostly in Jerusalem, they're having a really hard time. Not so in Corinth. It's a very wealthy city. We ought to help them out. Reason number one, because Christianity comes from the Jews. Jesus says salvation is of the Jews. That's where it starts right? God chose to speak to humanity and chose a guy named Abraham, the first Jew, basically, and started the Jewish race. Since then, he spoke through all the prophets who were Jewish. The Messiah is Jewish. We owe the Jews, in a way, for our faith. Most Christians I know have a heart for the Jews, for Israel, for Jerusalem. Pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? So about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So there's a methodic way he wants them to give. I'm going to show you what it is and what it's not. But the other thing I'll just tell you now that's going on here, there's the, that's the surface thing. They're in need. Christianity came from Jews. We should support them because we can and we ought to. But the other thing going on is suddenly on planet Earth, you've got Christianity and Judaism. And there was anti-Semitism from the Christians to the Jews, and the Jews resented and hated the Christians. Uh, even Gentile Christians hated Jewish Christians, and we're all supposed to be brothers. He's trying to get them to see, look, we're all one Christian church, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Methodic, methodical giving. Let's start with this. Verse two. Every now and then, is that what it says? <laughs> Whenever you feel like it. No. On the first day of the week, of every week, do you see that? Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Okay, there's a lot in this verse. The first thing we got to talk about is the first day of the week, which if you're an American, is you think is Monday. But if you look at a calendar, what's the first day of the week? Sunday's the first day of the week. Okay, this is an astounding thing that the Jews who for centuries got together religiously to worship, to pray, on the seventh day, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a institution given to the Jews going back to the time of Moses. Before Moses, no Sabbath. Abraham didn't keep the Sabbath, didn't even know what it was. Moses gets the Ten Commandments. One of them is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What's a Sabbath? The word means rest. The Sabbath day, Jews accounted for time differently than we do. For us, today started at midnight, right? And it will end at midnight when Wednesday will start. 
For Jews, the day started at sundown. So the Sabbath was sundown Friday night when the first stars appear to sundown Saturday. Got the picture? So it could be late Saturday night, and that would already be the first day of the week. In any case, Christians clearly worshipped on the first day of the week, Sunday. The church fathers talk about it. The Bible says it here, says it in the book of Acts. It says it in Revelation chapter 1. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It's the Lord's day, first day of the week. Why the first day of the week? Why change that? Number one, Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, right? Um, Pentecost, church was born first day of the week. Christians worshiped on the first day of the week. There are Christians, Seventh-day Adventists, there's others that believe, no, we need to keep the Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Is it? Yes. Okay. Who was the Sabbath given to? It was given to the Jews. Are you a Jew? No. That's number one. Number two, you can look through the whole New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, the Christian scriptures. That's what the New Testament is. There is never a command to worship on the Sabbath anywhere. Well, it's one of the Ten Commandments. That's right. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated as commands in the New Testament, not the Sabbath. It's still wrong to murder. It's still wrong to commit adultery, to lie, to not honor your parents, to not to have another God besides the God of the universe. The command to worship on the Sabbath is not given. Sometimes you will, in the New Testament, you'll meet people that say, well, I believe that I should worship on the Sabbath, Saturday, to which you should say, I agree. You should. But I think Sunday's a good day too, and so is Tuesday and Thursday afternoon isn't bad either, right? Um, Paul talks about this in Romans and says, some people consider one day above another day. Others consider every day the same, and you're expecting him to go, now here's the right thing. And you know what he says? Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Meaning, you guys worship on Wednesday? Good. That's good. You're worshiping Jesus biblically? Go for it. But the early church did worship on the first day of the week. Wanted to cover that. Um, okay. Eat, on the first day of the week, who should give? NIV, the next two words are each one. Doesn't say the ones that have a lot of money, ones that aren't poor, ones that aren't sick. It says each one should give. By the way, how much should we give? Some of you are going to raise your hand and go, a tithe, 10%. Who was that law given to? Jews, Old Testament. Isn't the tithe, the 10% giving in the New Testament? Nowhere. Not there. Oh, good, I'm off the hook. Well, listen, <laughs> maybe we should take a collection. No, here's the thing. Um, there's no, notice it doesn't say, you're expecting him to go, should set aside 10%. It just says a sum of money in keeping with your income. It may be different in your translation. What that means is that the guy that makes $100 million a year 
probably should be giving a little more than the guy that makes $380 a week, don't you think? As you're able, God enabled you, gave you the money, gave you the ability to do whatever you do for work. There's methodical giving. Each one, that's the who, should plan. Don't write the check at church. How much should we give? What do you think? The sermon wasn't very good. Make it $5. <laughs> Don't do it that way. At home, set aside a sum of money. This is before checks and all that, credit cards. Nowadays, mentally set aside a sum of money. Do you tithe? Do you give 10%? That's great. Good place to start. How many know the story of J.C. Penny, the guy that started pennies? Do you know that story? He and his wife are Christians. They start the store. They're making money. They give 10%. They open other stores. They're starting to make crazy money, more than he ever dreamed of. He starts giving 20% and then 30 and then 40 and then 50, realizing I'm living on 50% of my income and I have plenty of money. So he starts giving 60 and 70 and 75 and 80. He ends up tithing 90% of his income because 10 was still plenty to live on. I don't need 19 mansions and four Rolls Royces although it would be nice. No, I'm just kidding. Each one, that's who, set aside a sum of, sum of money, plan it out. I've heard people say, I can't afford to give right now. When, when things are better financially, we'll give. I like to tell people, you can't afford not to give because God gave you whatever you have. Um, it's the one thing in the Old Testament with a promise about bring the whole tithe in the storehouse and test God, which is an abomination except for this one thing. Test God and see if you won't open the floodgates of heaven. Okay, so I should give a lot of money so I'll get a lot of money. No, if that's your motive, don't do it. Don't do it. Planned giving. Set aside a sum of money. Decide in keeping with your income, in other words, as you're able financially, saving it up. Yes, but there's a sale and I really want to get that. Try to separate in your mind. Listen, when you're shopping, needs, greeds. You'll be surprised when you're buying something. Do I need this? Well, I want it. No, I know. But do you need it? No. You know what you need? Air, food, water, clothing, shelter, companionship. Everything else is frosting on the cake, right? Speaking of cake, did anybody bring? No, okay, let's move on. <laughs> Keeping with your income, saving it up so that, this is so interesting. When I come, no collections will have to be made. You know what Paul is uncomfortable doing? Being Mr. Fundraiser Give. Come on now, everybody dig deep and write your check. He doesn't want to be that guy. No high pressure campaigns for giving. You ever see those churches that do all that? Or the TV ministries are famous for it. If you give $1,000, the Lord will give you a hundredfold, $100,000. Not biblical. And by the way, if that was true, why doesn't the guy just give to his own ministry a thousand times more? Do it again. He'll have $100 million in about a month, right? If, if that really was true. But God does love a cheerful giver. What does that mean? Don't give begrudgingly. What are you doing? I'm writing the check to the church with the rolling of the eyes. God goes, just keep your money then. Just a word. This is about money. 
But remember, the three T's, you also have time, talent, and treasure. Treasure is money, stuff you have. But you can give your time to the church, your talent, your ability to do something. Many of you do. Let's see, verse 2, did we beat that dead horse? Um, not quite. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, the truly needy ought to be helped in a church. Separate from this is a special um, donation or offering for those Christians in Jerusalem. You with me? But giving to a church is important because the church, besides keeping the lights on and fixing chairs or whatever else has to be done, paying the pastor and what have you, the church also gives to those who are needy. But the Bible sets out rules about giving to people that are needy and says, if somebody's not truly needy, don't give them the money. What do you mean? Example A, it's in one of the Thessalonian books. Listen to this. If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Not cannot work, like he's disabled, he's injured, he's sick, um, he's too old. If a man will not work, he's not needy. Don't help him. The Bible also sets forth um, instructions for helping widows. If a widow is in need, the church should help her out. Those who receive from the church ought to give back to the church in some way. That's also biblical. Here's one more. If the widow has daughters, sons that live nearby and can help, she's not in need. The first obligation is for the kids to help the widow out, if you will. Um, okay, we already talked about that. An extra collection. I want you to notice this is not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's an order. It's a command. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. When I come, no collections will have to be made. Watch how careful Paul is with money. Look at verse 3. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you, the congregation in Corinth, approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. He doesn't say, give me the money, I'll take care of it. He says, you people, pick some people you trust in your congregation to take the offering to Jerusalem, and I'll write letters of introduction to them that this is from the church in Corinth. These are Gentile believers who love you, Jewish believers, etc." That's what that verse is about, verse 3. Verse 4, if it seems advisable for me to go also, they'll accompany me if there's any question. But he's very above board with finances. I think Paul knew that money being a root, love of money being a root of all kinds of evil, a lot of churches have problems, don't they, with financial scandals. I used to go to a church where one or two people stole $200,000 from the church over a period of years. A friend of mine in, uh, pardon me, more than that? Oh, he's saying more than that, whatever. Um, in any case, wow. Um, to me, there's almost nothing worse than, worse than stealing from God, from a, from a church. But anyway, uh, verse 4, if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. He'll go with them to make sure the gift gets to where uh, it's going. Systematic giving. One more thing. Giving is an act of worship. Worship? 
worship. You have received from God and as a way of bowing down to him in humility and thanking him, you give back a portion of what you have. Uh, it's an act of worship. Philippians 4.18 talks about that. An outflow of grace that came from above that is being poured out to God via giving to a church. Uh, we already talked about the seventh day thing. Seventh day Adventists, by the way, uh, not all, but a lot of them. Uh, official doctrine of seventh day Adventism is Adventist theology is that those of you like me that worship on Sunday, we have the mark of the beast. Imagine that. Uh, I don't know where they get that, but in any case, um, personal giving, rich, poor, whatever you have. Um, let's keep rolling. Verse four. No, we already did that. Verse five. Now some personal requests. Here comes Paul laying out his itinerary. Okay. If you know the book of James, which we studied maybe a year or two ago, you know that it talks about, don't be the overconfident individual that says, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go to this town and make this much money. And then I'm going to go here and then I'm going to do that. That's a guy that's planning without including God in his plans. Always leave room for God to overrule your plans. Watch how Paul is not sitting waiting for God to act. He's making plans, but watch how tentative the plans are based on God's will. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Sounds pretty sure, right? Verse 6, perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or... See how uncertain it is? Even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Really, he's making plans, but he knows that God can always make a left turn. And in my family, we call it a divine interruption. Today, we're going to do this and this, and then we're going to go here. And then something happens or someone comes to the door or we meet somebody on the road and it's a divine interruption. We can't go, no, I didn't have this plan today. Get on my schedule. I have an, I have an availability in April of 2025. 20, you just go, God put this person in my field of view for a reason, right? Okay, perhaps verse six, I'll stay with you a while, even spend the winter so you can help me on my journey wherever I go. Verse seven, for I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. That's not a cut. It doesn't mean he doesn't want to see him. He means... I, I want to be there for a length of time. I don't want to just pop in and pop out. Um, I hope, rest of verse 7, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, if it be the Lord's will, if he allows it. But I will stay on in Ephesus, that's where he is now, until Pentecost. Listen to this, verse 9, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Isn't that interesting? So he's talking about his time, isn't he? His plans. And Paul works tirelessly for the gospel. But notice he's going to stay on at Ephesus. Why? Verse 9, because a great door of opportunity has opened to him. To spread the gospel there. That's a huge city. But notice the next phrase, there are many 
who oppose me. Listen, if God opens a door of opportunity, number one, be sure you walk through it. But when you do, you can expect opposition. Um, when the elders meet, we have a saying that when we're taking fire, when there's opposition, when there's spiritual warfare, when there's other things like that going on, we feel like we are over the target. That's why we're taking fire, if you will. If you stay home and lock your doors and draw your shades, you're not liable to not get much done for the Lord, but you also won't have much opposition. But if you're out there on the front lines, you can expect opposition. What is this great door for effective work? We don't, he doesn't specify. But what it means is there's a real opening for him to spread the gospel there in a way there hadn't been before. What's implied is the door has swung open and he doesn't know how long it's going to be open. I got to stay here and milk the cow while I can. I got to walk through that door and do what I can while I can. You say, must be great to be an apostle. I wish I was an apostle. I'd, I would love to have some doors open. Listen, do you have neighbors, relatives, friends, co-workers, cousins, old pals that are unsaved? And did they call you last Tuesday? That's a great door that's open. You never know. Share the gospel with them. Walk through the door. Use the time God's given you wisely. But don't be surprised if there's opposition. Who's the example there? Well, the Apostle Paul faced unbelievable opposition all over the place. If you read in the book of Acts about what he's talking about here, Ephesus has a, um, a guild, almost like a union, of silver workers, okay? When we studied Ephesians, you may remember this, but also uh, Acts. It's been a while for Acts. And these silver workers were all united, making tons of money. What were they doing? There was idolatry there. There was Artemis or Diana, same fake god, pagan god. Two names. It's uh, a woman, Diana. Artemis sounds like a man's name. It's a woman's name. It's the same name for the pagan god. They worshiped there. They had a huge temple there. And these silver uh, workers had figured out if we make little Artemis dolls, not dolls, but silver little idols, varying sizes, come on down to my warehouse and I'll show you the showroom. People will buy them and they have a little temple in their own house to this. They were making all kinds of money. Paul is in Ephesus preaching. That's not a real God. It's made up. She's not real. It's a statue. Artemis, Diana, by the way, was a woman who had more than the normal number of breasts. She was all breasts, right? A man probably invented this God. But anyway, <laughs> A bunch of breasts, fertility, and, and so they would make these little silver things and sell them, and they were making a killing financially. Paul comes along saying, that's a fake God. This is the real God. He came as a man to earth to die for you in love, in grace. He's preaching this, and people are going, oh, I don't want any idols. No, thanks. I don't want to buy your silver. So these silver merchants, for two hours, two hours, chant great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours long. 
Talk about a sports rally, right? Great opposition there. Paul doesn't care. A door's open for great ministry. He's going to walk through it. Uh, let's see. I'm still reading notes here. So he wants to go see them. He's making plans, but he's always asking God. So the question arises, how can you know the will of God? I want to make plans. We're considering moving to Alabama or we're considering, I'm considering taking this job, this new job, or I'm considering marrying this woman or I'm considering whatever, fill in the blank, guidance, right? So the first thing you do is, do I need this? Second thing you do is you pray. Maybe that's the first thing, right? Lord, if this is your will, please show me. If it's not, please close the doors. That's how we pray. And open whatever door you have for me. Go to the word and see if there's anything you're doing that would be not biblical. I'm considering using heroin, Lord, and I really want your will on this. I'm considering getting drunk Thursday with my friends, but your will be done. Come on. It's biblically, that's so dumb. That's not according. I'm considering leaving my wife for another woman. It's not biblical. Don't do it. Stop right there. But there are some things that are not clearly spelled out in the Bible. Do I take the job in Houston or the job in Detroit or stay here? You can't look that up in the book of Job, or that would be Job, I guess. But anyway, you can't look that up, right? So you just pray, Lord, show me, um, confirm it. Take the counsel of wise brothers and sisters who are believers. Pray, ask for God's guidance. However, there's two extremes. Extreme number one, the guy that never does anything because he's always afraid of, I don't want to hurt God's feelings. I don't want to stay out of uh, God's way. He never does anything. The other extreme is the guy that does everything or gal and says, follow me, God, and doesn't even consult God hoping God will bless whatever he's doing. In between is God's will, like Paul. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I hope to do this. There's a door open here. But if the Lord permits, God's will be done constantly in prayer, using the time, talent, and treasure wisely. Um, yeah, we talked about that too. Verse, let's see, we're moving right along. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay. Zoom, are you still awake, people? Okay, see some hands there. That's good. Um, oh, somebody's got a hand up. Isn't that interesting? Um, okay. Uh, let's see. So those, Paul gives his plans. Now he's going to talk about some, another resource. There's time, there's treasure, and then there's people. Without people, you're not going to get a lot done in the church. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Let's talk about Timothy. Is this the same Timothy? First Timothy, second Timothy? Yes. Paul wrote those books to Timothy. It's his young protege who he led to the Lord. He had a godly mother and grandmother, but Paul led him to Jesus. Timothy is uh, a, an interesting guy. Timothy and Titus, whenever there's problem areas, Paul sends them there. 
They're young Christians, they're energetic, but Timothy has, listen, health problems, confidence problems. You read First and Second Timothy, Paul says, take a little wine for your frequent stomach illnesses. Paul says, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. He's got some insecurity issues. Um, he's the one that Paul writes First and Second Timothy to. In any case, um, Timothy eventually takes Paul's place in, of all places, Ephesus, where we just talked about. Timothy's going to come there. Um, yeah, this is a church, Corinth is, that has a great deal of trouble submitting to any authority. They have minds of their own, right? The paganism has drifted in. When Timothy comes, because Timothy's, I'm sending him there, Paul says, see to it he has nothing to fear. He's a guy that has great fear. Today, we might call him somebody with mental things that he's got great depression or whatever. See to it he has nothing to fear. In other words, make him feel welcome. He's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am, verse 10. Verse 11, no one then should treat him with contempt because Corinth was a tough crowd. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. So there's Timothy. Paul's got what we would call, in fact, in my family, we use this term, a team. Who's my team? Who's your team? The people around you that love you, that care about you, who check in on you, who call you, and you call them as well. I know that the phone works both ways, right? Have you ever had this happen where I constantly call so-and-so, he never calls me. You know what? Keep calling him. You're doing the right thing. Uh, my dad was big on that kind of thing. Okay, next category, more people. Now about, about our brother, Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity, when there's an open door for him there. Who's Apollos? Apollos is a guy, if you remember in the early chapters, there was a division in the church in Corinth where some were saying, well, I'm of Apollos and I'm a Paul Christian, I'm a Jesus Christian. Oh, where of Peter, this little group? They all have their little guru guys or their main guys that they follow. What this shows is that Paul and Apollos and Peter weren't behind these little divisions, right? We're supposed to be about Christ, which is a word about don't follow any one minister because men might just disappoint you. Follow Christ. Our Apollos, we know from Acts and elsewhere, was a really brilliant man and an eloquent speaker. Paul considers himself not that good of a speaker, but Apollos had the, the gift to be able to really explain the scriptures well. He figures maybe Apollos can go to Corinth and fix some of the doctrinal problems there. He urged him to go with the other brothers that are coming, but he wasn't willing to go now. He'll go when he has the opportunity, Paul says. Um, that's what's going on there. So, but uh, they're both still on friendly terms. They're not saying, well, I've got more people in my little clique than you do. There's none of that competition stuff going on. Um, verse 13, some general instructions. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, 
Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Okay, so that's a little, because now he's going to go back to people. Look at verse 15. The house of Stephan, household of Stephanus, see that there? And he mentions Fortunatus and Achaeus later on in verse 17. But this little island here, this little one verse is chock full of stuff. Verse 13. It's sort of saying the same thing in several ways. First of all, be on your guard. Don't let your guard down. You ever heard that saying? You say, why would he say that? Actually, you know what? I just noticed, I looked at the clock. It's time to take our two-minute break, and we'll pick up at verse 13 when we get back. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. That's really important. Those of you on Zoom, hang with me. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we go. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We took our two-minute break, and... uh, A lot of people woke up, and that's good. Let's go back to verse 13. We're in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Number one, be on your guard. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, he talks about the end times. Do you know what word he uses the most? Watch or be on guard. Watch means be on watch. So you say, well, what am I? By the way, these are all military terms, soldier terms. What am I to watch for or be on guard for? Uh, In the Bible, it says to watch for the Lord's coming. Did you know that? It feels like, oh, it's a long ways away. You never know. Watch for the Lord's coming. Be on guard. Watch out for temptation. Watch out for it. If you're expecting it, you're much more likely to handle it properly, then if it comes on you and you weren't expecting temptation and you fall to it, watch for the Lord's coming. Watch out for temptation, obviously, to avoid it. Watch out for, this is so important in our culture, distraction. Being so distracted by what's going on in the news and in the world and in your favorite TV show and all the other stuff that you forget to pray, to read the word, to do what God wants you to do. Watch out for the danger of division in a church. The elders in this church are very aware that these little division things can happen and two or three different little clicks. And before you know it, we we have little uh, dissension and it's a distraction, isn't it? Um, Division, very important. Watch out for the deception of false teachers and false doctrine. And there's a ton of it out there right now on the internet on christian television false doctrine you say i'm worried about that how would i watch out for that listen if you know what you believe and why you believe it which we talked about earlier you won't be fooled we always use this analogy money a dollar bill you all know what it looks like if i showed you a yellow dollar bill or purple you would know something's wrong. If I showed you a $9 bill with Hillary Clinton's picture on it and asked, do you have change, maybe three threes you could give me, you would immediately not be fooled, right? The counterfeit, listen, is always very close to the original, just a little different. The more you know the word, you won't be fooled by false doctrine. Know the real, the counterfeit will never 
fool you. Be on guard. Watch for false teachers, false doctrine. Watch out for failure to love one another. That's the Ephesus church in the book of Revelation. Do you remember the seven letters of seven churches? The Ephesus letter says, you've left your first love. You people used to be so in love with God and so loving as a community, and somehow that love grew cold. You say, well, love is a feeling, and feelings come and go, and it's not a feeling. It's a verb. It's something you just do, whether you feel it or not. Watch out for failure to love others. Watch out for danger inside and outside the church. Watch out for um, paganism or the worldliness to seep into the church. Watch out for that. Um, okay, back to verse 13. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Said earlier, bears repeating, stand. Standing is a position of strength, right? You don't retreat. I'm going to let go of some of these Christian beliefs I had. No, we stand firm in what we know to be true. The beautiful thing about the Bible is science has had so many strange beliefs over the last 2,000 years. Are you aware that not too many centuries ago, if you came to a doctor and were sick, do you know what the smartest mind said needed to be done? Bloodletting. Do you know what that is? What? Take a bunch of blood out of the guy. That ought to fix him, <laughs> you think, right? Science has been all over the map. In an effort to thwart people's beliefs in God and a creator and a creation and God creating the world at Genesis 1, what does science come up with? Their best shot, right? The Big Bang. Evolution. It all just happened by itself. Nothing created everything. Sounds scientific. No, it doesn't. It sounds stupid to me. Okay, sorry. I get, I get off on tangents sometimes. Um, stand fast. Understand what you believe and why you believe it. The Bible says to stand fast in your liberty in Christ, in Christian unity. Stand fast in the Lord himself, Philippians 1, in the teaching of the apostles. That's in the word. Um, this means stay the course, hold on to what you have. You can't hold on to what you don't know. It's important that you know it. Um, toward the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, you know what Paul wrote? I've kept the faith. I've run the course. Beautiful. Next phrase, verse 13. Um, be courageous, NIV has. Be strong. Literally, you know how this reads in the Greek? Act like men. Not you ladies. Keep in mind there's only two genders. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, don't, uh, don't back down. It's another way of saying the same sort of thing. Stand up for what you believe. Be courageous. Have great courage. Um, you know what the Bible says a ton? Fear not. Don't fear. Jesus appears in, Matthew, in Luke 24 to the disciples who think they're seeing a ghost and they're afraid. And the first thing out of his mouth is, fear not. Don't be afraid. Beautiful. 
Um, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't be afraid. Be strong. Verse 14, do everything in love. Boy, you just can't beat that one. Let all be done with love, literally is how it reads. So no matter what you're doing, standing firm and witnessing and watching, do it with a meek, humble spirit of love. All Think of how much church friction and division could be avoided if we just did everything in love. Well, that person's wrong and I'm really going to tell him off. Wait, do all things in love. That'll change the way you say what you're going to say, won't it? Might not say it at all or might say it very differently. Do everything in love. What's interesting is the Lord Jesus Christ did everything in love. Even dying on a cross. You say, well, wait now, he, he turned over those tables in the, in the temple and that was in love. Because they're tr worshiping God, people are coming to try to worship God, and they've turned it into a Kmart. They're trying to make money, a little bazaar thing, a flea market, if you will, uh, a stock market thing. Do everything in love. Boy, we could, that's a good bumper sticker, don't you think? Um, so let's see. By the way, that's the whole summary of chapter 13. Do everything in love, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. That We could review that whole chapter. Verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts or first fruits in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people. They have trouble submitting, remember. And to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Verse 15 and 16. So these first fruits of Achaia, Stephanus and his household were among the very first people saved in that region uh, when the gospel was preached. Um, Paul, at 1 Corinthians 1, 16, he didn't baptize many people, but he baptized this dude, Stephanus. Um, and the two names that he gives with him, uh, Fortunatus, Fortunatus and Achaicus in verse 17, by the names, the scholars tell us these are servants in his household, but treated like family members. Um, and they're also serving the Lord and have come to faith in, as part of his household. Um, they, they, let's see, they accompanied uh, they came with Stephanus when he, they came to see Paul. Uh, let's see. So he's urging them, submit to these people, submit to one another in love kind of thing. We read that earlier. Um, and he says, submit to, to such people. And to everyone, in verse 16, who joins in the work and labors at it. Much work to be done. And so there has to be a submission among servants because God is the boss, Christ is the boss, not the servants. Uh, these are Christ's or Paul's ambassadors. The history books tell us that Fortunatus, see that name there in verse 17? Um, this is a slave guy or servant who became a Christian. 
uh, lived on after Paul, and a, a church father named Clement wrote, wrote an epistle or letter to the Corinthian church, and he mentions the same guy who's still working for the Lord uh, decades later. Let's keep rolling. I was, for, I was glad, verse 17, when Stephanatus, Stephanus, sorry, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, anybody named their son or daughter Achaicus? I'm just curious. Arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. Now, I admit that sounds like just a little teensy-weensy bit of a little backhander. They supplied what was lacking from the Corinthian church. They weren't that hospitable to Paul. They questioned his apostleship. They have trouble submitting to him. But these people showed up and supplied what was lacking from the Corinthian church. Verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. If you've been working outside in a hundred degree heat, and are really tired and hot and almost delirious from the heat, and somebody brings you a cold drink and a wet towel and some shade, you feel refreshed physically. Verse 18, they refreshed my spirit. So we're not talking about cold drinks and towels. And so the question is, have you refreshed someone's spirit, encouraged them, come alongside them, comforted them, just to know that somebody cares when you call people. This church is in the process, by the way, of making sure every person that goes here has a directory with the phone number or email of every other person that goes here so that they can hound me, no, so that we can stay in touch more. And call each other and, hey, Bill, I didn't see you at church on Sunday. Everything okay? How are you guys doing? If you get that call, it means a lot, doesn't it? I think it refreshes your spirit. Um, another little weird saying in my family is the Holy Spirit text. I don't mean this to be, you know, um, uh, irreligious or anything, but the Holy Spirit text is a term in our family for the... I was in the middle of doing something and I just got a strong feeling I should call Ken. Every time I don't do that, well, I'm busy painting right now. I don't want to put the paintbrush down and clean the brush and wash my hands and then go call him. I'll call him later. Every time I don't obey that little text, it's a joke, it's not a text, but somebody comes into your mind, pray for him, call him up. Often, I obey it and call him, and the guy says, or the gal says, I can't believe you're calling right now. It's the perfect time. I'm having a really bad day. What's going on? Refresh. They refreshed my spirit. He's encouraged, and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Um, let's see. Oh, why not? We have time said the guy that's probably not going to finish. No, we won't. We will. Turn to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. It's the Lord is my shepherd, in case you're wondering. Um, I can't resist a plug for memorizing Psalm 23. It's only six verses. It looks like a lot. Trust me, you can do it. 
In times of trouble, in the middle of the night when I can't sleep, I recite it to myself. And think about each phrase. Why are we turning here, Joe? Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want, or shall not want. I shall lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, physical need, food, and also rest. He leads me beside quiet waters, physical need, and mental peace. He restores my soul. Do you see that? Refreshes my spirit. Same kind of thing. God does. No, but God doesn't call me. Oh, he calls you every day. If you read the Bible, you'll hear the little spiritual phone ring. Pray. The beautiful thing about praying is more uh, communication upward from me, right? But it shouldn't be a monologue. Pray and then just, excuse the language, just shut up and listen right? Be still and know that I am God, Old Testament. Pray and then just listen to him. And then read his word. That's where he speaks to you the most clearly. Um, But the reason I turn there is he restores my soul. Okay, go back to 1 Corinthians. That was a quick detour just to keep you awake. Um, They refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Verse 19, Final greetings. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. Okay, so the churches in the province of Asia, that's not, we today, if I say Asia, you say, oh, okay, China, Japan over there. Asia is much more west from yeah, west from there. Uh, Turkey would be in Asia. But churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. In other words, we're all one family. They may have never met them, but they know about the church in Corinth. They know about the one in Galatia and the one in Thessalonica and what have you. They're sending greetings. Um, Aquila and Priscilla, we meet them in the book of Acts. This is a married couple, and they ministered with Paul in Corinth. And they were at Ephesus with Paul at that time. Uh, So they greet you warmly in the Lord. So does the church that meets at their house, a home church. In a large city, by the way, there would be more than one often home church. Sometimes they would all get together, but maybe they couldn't fit more than 30 or 40 or 50 people in one house. So they would meet at split up and meet at two different houses. Home churches, like I said, third century is when church churches started, buildings, if you will. Um, Yeah, we already talked about that. Okay, now it's time for us to practice verse 20. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Let's take a few minutes and do that now. (laughs) What's the matter with you people? Who wants to be first? Okay. First of all, all the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Paul talks about this church and the other churches. He loves them, their family. He understands that the Bible speaks of us in terms of brothers and sisters, brethren, right? We're supposed to get along. Um, 
By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by your love, Gospel of John. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So we'll have a time to do that later. But for now, let me explain. This is a Jewish custom. Um, it was done in, and it still is done in some parts of the world, right? You go to other countries and they'll give you, men will give another man a kiss on both cheeks and vice versa, right? Um, some of the old Italian relatives of mine would greet me with a kiss on the cheek. And at, at eight years old, I'm going, wow, whatever, you know. <laughs> okay, so this is an example of a cultural thing. We don't normally do that, at least in America. Like I said, there's other countries where they do that all the time. The point is not the kiss. It is not a lustful thing. It's not, I read about this, it's not a man giving a holy kiss to a woman. It's men kissing men, women kissing women on the cheek, a, a, a show of affection. Isn't it ironic that this is what Judas chose as the sign to betray Jesus, right? So it's not a betrayal kind of a kiss. It's not a lustful kiss. It's warmth. In our culture, at least we shake hands. Men do. Women might shake hands, um, but we also hug, don't we? That's considered okay. Some people are a little uncomfortable with it. Get used to it. We love each other. Amen. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I like that. Uh, love. Um, okay, verse 21. Still got plenty of time. We might finish tonight. You never know. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. You say, why is that in there? Okay. Um, from the book of Galatians and elsewhere, we know a couple things about Paul. Number one, had an eye problem. Don't know what it is. There's all kinds of theories, um, but he had an eye problem. He also had poor handwriting, probably from the eye problem. When my mom got macular degeneration so bad she could barely see, she would write big, huge letters because she couldn't see small. He says, see with what large letters I write to you in one of his other letters. So what's going on here? Paul uses what's called an amanuensis. It's a fancy word. You know what it means? A secretary. All these books, most of them, he dictates. And somebody, Andrew here is my amanuensis, and I'm writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and maybe reading it back to me to make sure he, I, he heard it right. Paul uses a secretary. Um, let's see. Uh, and so to authenticate his letters and to make them more personal at the end, because he knows he's wrapping things up here, he takes the pen himself and writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, both for warmth's sake, but also to authenticate it's really Paul's handwriting here. Because we might have the book of Colossians and go, wait, the handwriting is so different. I don't think Paul wrote this book. Or look, it's the same. Yeah, it's this is from Paul kind of thing. To authenticate it. Um, I write this greeting in my own hand. Verse 22 is a weird verse, I will admit. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be accursed. Wow. What did he say? And then come Lord or Maranatha after that. Let's take that verse apart. Verse 22. 
First of all, why in this tagging of his letter does he have to say something this harsh? You got to remember the context. This is a church in Corinth with tremendous problems. There are many with a said faith rather than a real faith. That paganism has poured into that church and infiltrated all kinds of people in the church, okay? The implication, what's implied here is that there are people in that church who say they love the Lord, right? And so anybody can say those words, right? I love the Lord. I love Jesus. That's great. How will we know whether it's true when he says it and she says it, but not this guy over here. The answer is, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Meaning what? A true love for the Lord will show itself, demonstrate itself in actions, right? And he's saying, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, he doesn't mean the pagans, although they are cursed. They still live under the curse of Adam, right? They're out of the will of God. They're sinning. Yes, but I'm a sinner too. Yes, but your sins have been forgiven and so have mine because we love the Lord. What does Jesus say? Um, is it in John 14? Yes, it is. Let's go there now. John 14, right after John 13. John 14, Jesus says an interesting thing. John 14, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll do something. Do you see that? If you love me, you will obey what I command. Therefore, someone that says, I love the Lord. Oh, you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian too. I love the Lord. And you know, or they tell you, that they're living a life of perpetual, ongoing, sinful conduct. I'm a drug addict. I'm a prostitute. I'm a thief. I'm a living with my girlfriend. I'm a practicing homosexual. Those things the Bible calls sin. So you need to read them this verse. If you love me, you will obey what I command. The Bible commands these things are sin and we're to abstain from lusts. We're abstain from sin. If you're not doing that, something's wrong, right? The other evidence that that person might be what Paul's saying, a cursed or an unbeliever, is this. By definition, Romans says, if you're a believer, you do have 100% the Holy Spirit living inside of you. There's no such thing as a Christian. He's a Christian, but he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. You wouldn't have come to Jesus without the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is illuminate the Word of God to make it more understandable. But another thing it does is the Holy Spirit, He is a louder conscience. You have a conscience. You know when you're, I should probably do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Holy Spirit is a louder conscience. If you're a believer and you've sinned and you knew it was a sin and you did it, you know what happened afterwards. You felt terrible. That's the Holy Spirit convicting you. That's what he does, right? He honors Jesus. He magnifies Christ. 
If anyone doesn't love the Lord, he's talking in the context of a church of people that say they love the Lord and they're creating division. There's the guy in chapter five, remember in 1 Corinthians, who's living with his father's wife. You remember that one? He loves the Lord, does he? If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be cursed. The word is anathema. You ever heard that word? It means accursed. It means set apart from God, outside, cursed damned, you could even say. Um, Paul will have nothing to do with uh, people that are uh, phony Christians. Possible to have a said faith and not have a real saving faith. The truth, the proof, sorry, is in their fruits, what they do in their life. Um, Let's see. Okay, the last part of verse 22. This NIV has come, Lord. Some have Maranatha. Do you have that word? Um, okay, so what's going on here? Oh, we forgot to do that. I can come back and do that later. Okay, Maranatha. Most Christians, and there's two schools of thought on this word, by the way. Depends how you divide it, believe it or not. It's an Aramaic word. Most scholars think it means... Come back, Lord Jesus, the sooner the better. Maranatha. It's at the end of Revelation, right? The sooner you can come back, the better. And that might be what it means. It might be both meanings. But that's the most people you will read on this passage say that's what it means. Um, Come back, Lord Jesus, the sooner the better. If you are conscious of your surroundings in this world, what's going on in the news, in our country, the sin, the abominations going on. The only, if you groan in your spirit because you're physically ill or in pain or you've been hurt or for whatever reason, and you understand that when he comes back, listen, for a believer, every single thing gets a trillion times improved. Amen. In fact, totally new. So we ought to be longing for his coming. Yes, but I have some things I want to achieve in my life. Listen, nothing beats this. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, the sooner the better. The other school of thought on that word um, is, uh, it can be translated, our Lord has come, past tense. That it's a word of praise that he, of all things, God became a man, humbled himself, lived the perfect life we couldn't live, sinless, died the horrible death I and you and I deserved, and rose from the dead and offers us his righteousness in exchange for our garbage, our sin and shame. It's a way of saying, praise God, he showed up. Our Lord has come. As I said, the majority view is, it's a, it's a command, not a command, but a wish. Come, Lord Jesus, the sooner the better. Sometimes we watch the news and go, please, Lord, as soon as possible. Um, we ought to be the sort of person that if the Lord comes back and we have to leave behind stuff on this planet, that we don't even look back. What is there that you, you're so attached to? If you are that attached, that brings us to 1 John uh, chapter 2. Let's turn there now, and we barely have time, but we're getting by.
Probably have two more hours. Did you bring sleeping bags? Anybody? First John chapter two. So go to Revelation and then go three or four books to the left. First John chapter two. And we want verse 15. First John chapter two, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the flesh, which is what that is, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and, her, or, and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Yes, but the world is so alluring and Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Nothing worse than a Christian trying to straddle the fence of Christianity and the world. What does the world offer? Money, possessions, fame, good looks, sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? <laughs> um, what does the world offer that has any eternal significance whatsoever? Nothing. It's all temporary. It, listen, it's all, you ever play Monopoly when you were a kid? It's all Monopoly money. It's all of it. It's all going to burn, according to the Bible. All of it. The Bible says that the only things that are eternal, that you see every day, are the people and the word of God. That's it. Everything else is going to burn. And to hammer home the point, God, with a sense of humor, I think, explains that in heaven, what is so valuable on the earth, gold, oh, we pave roads with that here. Right? To show you, it doesn't matter. Nobody on their deathbed ever says, if only I had made more money. If only I had worked harder. No, it's always stuff about people and about God, isn't it? The eternal stuff. The people that you see will all last forever. The believers, you'll live with them forever in heaven. The unbelievers will last forever but you'll never see them again after the judgment. They'll be outside, separated, because that's what they wanted. Okay, now that I've bummed everybody out, let's move on. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Last two verses, 23 and 24. should take about an hour to get through these. Just kidding. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. I remember when I was a young Christian, I was too embarrassed. I was in a Bible study with a... a at our house, we had like eight people, and there was an older couple, couple, Leonard and Grace Rich. They both long since died. This is in the early 80s. And he always talked about grace. And I was such a baby Christian, I was afraid to go, what is grace? Grace, it, yeah, it's all grace. What is grace? Grace is good things God gives you that you don't deserve and you can't earn and he doesn't owe it to you. It's grace, gifts, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Wages, grace, two different things. Somebody, um, Andrew brings his tractor over to my property and grades it, and we agree on a price of $5,000, and I pay him, and that's not grace. You know why? Because he earned it. It's wages. On the other hand, if I find out that Jen and Andrew are having problems financially, and my wife and I discuss it, and we decide to give them $5,000 to help them out, $5,000, that's grace. Right? They didn't earn it, they don't deserve it necessarily. We don't owe it to them. So we make feeble attempts at giving, but God is the king at giving grace. Can you hear me? That's grace. Can you see me? That's gra- if you can't, praise God for the other senses you have. But if you can, that's grace. Can you move your hand? That's grace. Can you walk? Can you think? Do you have food on the table? Do you have air to breathe? Do you have beautiful surroundings? We could go on and on and on. It's all grace. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, when you first open your eyes, imagine that sitting next to your bed is a wrapped present. There's one there every morning. Did you know that? You know what it is? Today. Some people don't have today. They passed away a month ago or a year ago. You do every day a gift. God goes, more more grace for you. It's awesome. Do you see why we owe him everything? Let's take a collection right now. Let's not. Okay. <laughs> Last verse. You're running out of time, Joe. Yes, I know. The grace of the Lord Jesus, that's the greatest grace there is be with you. If you understand the grace, what he's given you that you didn't deserve, you'll be able to forgive people, give to people, love people who don't deserve it, even the jerks, because you were a jerk to him for a while. So was I. Last verse, verse 24. Oh, look, we're out of time. No, I'm just kidding. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. May I say, no one in the universe ever loved like Jesus Christ. He said it himself, greater love has no man that he laid, than that he laid down his life for his friends. Even that verse, the next verse says, and you're my friends if you do what I command you. Obedience ties right in with belief and faith. All right, we're done with 1 Corinthians. Can you believe it? Next week, amen, by the way, means so be it. Um, next week, we have a little odd scheduling thing. Here's why we're going to do this. Next week, we're not going to study the book of the Bible. We're going to do a general Bible question and answer time. You can email me a question, replying to whatever email you get from me for this Bible study. Um, You can bring a question and just raise your hand and say it, and I'll repeat it for the people on Zoom. Um, Email it, say it. You can come here, and if you don't want to speak up in person, you could write it down ahead of time and just hand it in and I'll read it and embarrass you. No, I'm just kidding. Anonymously read it and we'll try to answer questions. Why are we doing this? Because in two weeks, um, we're going to be out of town on vacation. So rather than start the book of Matthew, which is the next book we're going to study, and then have a week off, I thought, let's do the Q&A thing. We'll take a week off, and then we'll start the Gospel of Matthew, which is an awesome book. Anyway, we're late. Let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in 1 Corinthians. We've seen a church with problems. We've seen your instruction to them. And it all centers on chapter 13 about loving you and loving each other, God. The perfect love that comes from above. The perfect grace. The perfect peace. We love you, Father. We truly do owe you everything. Make us doers of your word, ones who give. Um, with a planned sort of a giving, as we saw at the beginning of this chapter. Help us to remember to spend our time wisely that we've been given. Thank you for the gift that was wrapped at the foot of my bed this morning, which is today. And, uh, and lastly, help us to re recognize that the, a great resource you've given us is other people. Help us to be team members, brethren, brothers, sisters, greeting each other with love, but also staying in touch with one another, Galatians 6, bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. How beautiful is that? Thank you for this book and the privilege of teaching this Bible study, Lord. I am so blessed. Bless each one that's here with great faith. May these truths change the way we live. Bless our time next week as we do a Q&A, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Very important. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. We'll see you soon.